0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 14, To Constantinople With Love Okay, so when we last left off, we were discussing the situation which faced Britain in the summer of 1914. The violation of Belgian neutrality allowed Sir Edward Gray to round up support for Britain's involvement and on August the 4th, the British Empire officially joined the First Continental War since the defeat of Napoleon a century earlier. The British Declaration of War marks a bit of a watershed moment, as it is commonly seen when the Great European War became the Great World War, because it was not just the English who found themselves preparing to fight Germany and its Austro-Hungarian ally. Its crown colonies and dominions, namely Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, Newfoundland, and South Africa, were all also brought into the fold at the same time. Now as I said at the end of the last episode, one of the things I want to do going forward is to account for the changing nature of the war, and how it spread beyond the borders of the European continent, because it did not take too long for all that to happen. So we are going to change course just a little bit this week. Instead of talking about the opening battles on the western and eastern fronts, I want to crack the war wide open, and account for some of the other powers before really digging into the guts of the thing. So as you can probably tell from the title, I want to spend this week talking about the Ottomans because the story of their involvement is fascinating and is often overshadowed by the events unfolding in Western Europe. Plus, it would be a good idea to touch base with them before we get in too deep and risk having to backtrack. At the height of the July Crisis, the Ottoman Turks shared a lot of similarities with their British contemporaries. Like the Brits, the oft forgotten Ottomans remained outside of the Continental Alliance system and were facing the same political divisions within its government which had confronted Sir Edward Grey. The Ottoman Parliament, the Port was divided between pro-Entente and pro-Alliance factions, the former being led by the Grand Vizier Sayyid Halim, and the latter by the Chief of Staff and War Minister, Enver Pasha. In the summer of 1914, the Turks occupied their own little pocket and kept their options open, but were facing a lot of pressure from both Entente and Alliance camps to declare themselves to one side or the other. Although it was no secret that Constantinople was rampant with corruption and uncertainty, that did not dissuade the European powers from seeing them as a valuable ally. By 1914, their empire still dominated from the Black to Red Sea, and was the cultural and religious center of the Muslim world, which still held considerable influence over the Muslims living under French, British, or Russian rule in Africa or Central Asia. For the Entente, the entry of the Ottomans meant they could assist in reinforcing Russian divisions against German or Austrian troops on the Eastern Front, and protecting the Dardanelles and Bosphorus sea lanes which were so crucial to the Russian economic infrastructure. But on the other hand, if they joined the Central Powers, the Turks could just as easily strip the two waterways from Russian usage, or better yet, open a second front against the Russians by attacking their holdings in Central Asia. The problem facing the Entente was that the relationship between the Russians and Ottomans was simply abysmal, and there was no way they were ever going to agree on anything. This should not come as a surprise to us, the two powers did have a long history of animosity, And most recently, it was the Russian-supported Balkan League which had carved its way through Ottoman holdings in Thrace and Macedonia during the two Balkan Wars. So it is safe to say that any rapprochement between the two was a bit of a pipe dream. The natural result, which came of this long-standing Russo-Turkish disdain, was that the Turks had come to see a friend in Germany. Dating back to 1888, the Germans and Ottomans reached an agreement on the construction of the Berlin-to-Baghdad Railway, which would allow German access to the Ottoman oil fields while sticking it to the British at the same time. Following the Balkan Wars, Berlin had dispatched Lehmann von Sanders, a respected military officer to help reorganize Ottoman defenses around Constantinople. Although Russian protests had Sanders demoted, he remained a close advisor to guys like Enver Pasha, and was a constant, if not welcomed reminder of Germany's commitment to Ottoman sovereignty. This olive branch was reciprocated on August 2, 1914, when Enver Pasha concluded a secret treaty with the German ambassador, Hans von Wagenheim. The treaty outlined that Ottoman forces would open a separate campaign against Russia in the Caucasus to reduce the strain on the Austro-German forces in Europe. Although the treaty was ratified at the port in Constantinople, the Grand Vizier Said Halim blocked Pasha and Saunders from ordering the army to begin mobilization. While Pasha wanted to support the Germans immediately, Halim was more cautious in his approach. The Grand Vizier understood the Empire was not yet ready to become embroiled in a conflict with the Russians. After all, the Balkan Wars had been devastating to the Ottoman military, and there remained a strong sense of weariness within the general population which threatened to snap if things got too testy. The catalyst which would drive the Ottomans to finally side with Germany started with the ineptitude of the British Royal Navy over two events in the Mediterranean. Following the British declaration of war on August the 4th, the British would give the Germans a PR gift, when a young Winston Churchill, who was First Lord of the Admiralty at the time, ordered the seizure of two British-constructed dreadnoughts, which had been purchased by Constantinople the previous year. Churchill, whose position of First Lord put him in charge of Royal Navy operations, did not want to risk the two dreadnoughts falling into the hands of a potential enemy, and so had them recommissioned. Despite protests from the port, the Admiralty made only half-hearted gestures at reimbursement, and within the capital, guys like Pasha and the Ambassador Wagenheim, were able to capitalize on this frustration and gain some ground on proposing a military venture against Russia. The second event though was much more dramatic, as it involved a game of cat and mouse between the Royal Navy and two German battlecruisers, the Goeben and the Breslau, as the eluded British patrols en route to their escape from the Mediterranean. The incident of the Goibin and Breslau is a dramatic story of the war's early days and is often lost in the shuffle of August 1914, so I thought it would be worth highlighting it in advance. Although Britain and Germany were not yet at war with one another, on July the 28th, the German Imperial Navy recognized that if hostilities were to break out, they would need to recall its vessels to the North Sea in order to counteract the presence of the Royal Navy. The problem facing Tirpitz and Naval Command was that two of their ships, the Goeben and Breslau, were anchored in the Mediterranean. They would have no chance against the British presence stationed there. So Tirpitz ordered Admiral Wilhelm Schuken to steam the Goeben and Breslau out of the Mediterranean and return to the North Sea before the Royal Navy caught wind of their escape. But Churchill and the Admiralty had been aware of the two ships for quite some time. On August the 4th, the British commander of the Mediterranean fleet, Admiral Ultrabald Milne, received orders to trap the Goeben and Breslau from making their escape. On August the 5th, the German cruisers were spotted heading out of the Straits of Messina, that narrow sea lane which divides Sicily, mainland Italy. To seal off potential escape routes, Milne had sent detachments to blockade the Straits of Gibraltar and guard the entrance to the Adriatic, effectively restricting the battle cruisers to the Mediterranean. But through skill and a bit of luck, Admiral Shukin would successfully elude British patrols for the next 72 hours, and neither the Breslau or Goybin were spotted until August 8th, seen heading at full speed towards the Dardanelles. By August 10th, the two ships had slipped through into the Sea of Marmara and had anchored at Constantinople. Despite the neutrality and protests from London, the Turks provided a safe haven for the vessels. In a twist which would eventually force Turkey's hand, Enver Pasha informed the British Admiralty on August the 17th that the two German cruisers had been purchased by the Ottoman government and had been repurposed into their navy. The loss of the two ships was a PR nightmare for the British Admiralty. On the one hand, the danger of the Goibin and Breslau had been removed, but the fact that they had slipped through the Royal Navy patrols allowed the Germans to have a propaganda field day and use the event to undermine the British at every turn. In London, Churchill and the First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher argued that by allowing passage for Britain's enemies, the Turks had declared themselves against the British and proposed an attack on the Dardanelles take place in order to open the gate for an invasion force. Fortunately, this idea fell through, because the war office felt that an attack on Ottoman territory would surely drive the Turks into the German side, so it would be better to keep them neutral for the time being. Churchill, of course, would eventually get his Dardanelles campaign in April of 1915, and would end up a catastrophic debacle. But it turns out that the Goibn and Breslau were not in fact purchased by the Ottomans, but were actually given as a gift. With permission from the naval office, Wagenheim, Enver Pasha, and Admiral Schukin had organized that the ships be used to replace the ones the British had seized, but also to entice the Ottomans to come out of neutrality onto the side of the Germans and Austrians. So beginning in August until late October, there was an intense game of of tug-of-war between Berlin and Constantinople. Said Halim had informed Wagenheim that despite the generous gifts, his government was still not ready to give their support. It would need additional supplies in order to get them over the hump. After securing an agreement with the Bulgarians and Romanians that they would not interfere, German supplies were soon en route via the Balkans to the Turkish capital. When it came to the question of financial support, things got a little bit bogged down. Berlin had no trouble sending a cash bonus but were reluctant to pay it in full until there was a guarantee that Constantinople would honour their pledge to attack the Russians in the Caucasus. A compromise was reached when Halim agreed that his government would get involved following the decisive German victory in the West, which appeared to be imminent following the French and British retreat at the Battles of the Frontiers. But in early September, the War Minister Enver Pasha and the pro-German factions in the port began to drop the event which would swing the opposition in favour of immediate intervention. Pasha was an influential voice in the capital, and his command of the Ottoman armies in Thrace during the Balkan Wars had given him the aura of a national hero, whose influence was second only to the Grand Vizier himself. Pasha and Admiral Shukin had become frustrated at Constantinople's reluctance to side with the German war effort. On September 3rd, their cause received help when a Turkish gunboat attempted to pass through the Dardanelles en route to the Aegean, but was turned back by the Royal Navy blockade which had been set up following the escape of the German cruisers. Pasha went to the port with the news, and argued to Halim and the non-interventionists that since a Turkish ship had been met with military protest, there was no doubt that the British were hoping to spark a conflict. The Grand Vizier, hoping to delay Turkey's involvement, managed to swing yet another compromise by mid-September. The agreement was that the Goybin and Breslau would be allowed to leave port and practice military maneuvers in the Black Sea, as long as they did not initiate conflict with any Russian forces they might encounter. But if they did preemptively engage the Russian Black Sea fleet, then the port would deny all knowledge of the ship's actions and claim that it was the work of a rogue faction which did not reflect the position of the Ottoman government. Now historians have debated if the Grand Vizier and the port understood the nature of this agreement. It could essentially be played in a number of ways. Halim must have believed that it was a strong enough deterrence to keep Pasha and Shukin from acting on their own accord because if it were to blow back on them, they could be brought up on treason charges. But the war minister and the admiral did not see it that way. Both men were desperate to get the Ottomans into the war before it was over. Since the port was indecisive on what to do, Pasha and Shukin figured they could entice the Russians to declare war first. On October 29th, the Goibin and Breslau, accompanied with a few other Turkish vessels, entered the Black Sea and attacked Russian ports along the coast, the largest being Odessa and Sevastopol. The raids were a resounding success, having destroyed numerous vessels including mine layers and destroyers still in anchor. When news of the raid reached the port, the Grand Vizier immediately ordered the cessation of hostilities. Pasha, sensing an opportunity to finally bring the empire into the war, appealed that the raid had been provoked by the Russians, claiming that one of the mine layers was equipped with over 700 mines which were destined to be laid at the north entrance of the Bosphorus. Halim found that he had little wiggle room. Although he did not want to get involved, it was all too clear that based on their strained relationship, reaching any reconciliation with the Russians would be impossible. Within the port itself, Halim was losing support by the day, as more ministers crossed over to the side of intervention. But there turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because on November the 2nd, the Russians declared war in retaliation, followed by France and Great Britain on the 5th. But it's interesting to note that they did so reluctantly. The French and British were concerned that if the Russians were forced to fight on two fronts, it would drastically reduce the effectiveness of the Allied war effort on the Western Front. In a telegraph to St. Petersburg, Sir Edward Grey noted, quote, Everything in the war depends on the Russian offensive against Germany. Unquote. Sergei zazanov assured Gray that the Russian theater against the Turks would not reduce their commitment to the French and British. It was also clear that neither ally could come to the Russians' aid, since by November their armies were deadlocked on the Western Front, following the race of the sea, which produced a continuous line of unbroken trenches which stretched from Switzerland to the North Sea. Next week we will swing back to the Western Front and look at how the war in Belgium and France was unfolding. The French, with the help of the British Expeditionary Force, fell on some hard times, but would be saved by the appearance of a new and deadly weapon on the battlefield, the taxicab. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find contact information on the bottom right side of the page. It's a little tricky to find, but it's there. If you want to help out, you can leave us a 5-star review on iTunes. Any comments, suggestions, or criticisms are always welcome. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.